inside the Legends, Legends Lounge, Lounge, where baseball VIPs are hanging out and talking about their life in the game. Okay, oh, I'm going to hit you with something, and this is not pre-planned. So oh, I don't know okay. what the answer is going to be, but how fast could you chuck a baseball? Obviously, you were not a pitcher. Right. How fast in my heyday of throwing? Sure. Um, probably 92. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That was actually more than i even expected but yeah because basically i just wanted to say whatever the number was i was like carrie wood throws harder <laughs> yeah well carrie wood did throw harder i would say 91 92 uh and and then my arm would have fallen off but no no i probably carrie wood i mean tell me just a little bit about his career because i remember it very well but maybe people don't realize scotty b what this kid did and, and how and what he did so early well, here's the thing, and this is what I do in the TV business is I, I tease you. So first off, right. I'm going to give you the little intro for Carrie when we bring him in in under a minute. And after we talk to Carrie, I'm going to give you more detail on something we'll get very deep into with Mr. Wood, which is the fifth start of his big league career, which put Correct. him on the absolute map in right. a year that I call one of the most historic and well-known and memorable and I would say entertaining year in baseball. The One of the most paparazzi-ish years in baseball because of the home sure. run chase, the whole deal. Kerry Wood was a part of it, not just a small part of it, not just a sliver. He was doing things that were wild on the mound. It's just, there was also the most epic home run chase of all time going on at the same time, which was a global phenomenon. In fact, he was, Sammy before Sammy. <laughs> I mean, you know, because earlier in that year, he did what he did. And then all of a sudden, uh, a gentleman by the name of Sammy Sosa took off. And by June, Sammy hit 20 home runs and, and the race was on with uh, the other gentleman pretty much almost across town, if you will, in St. Louis, uh, across uh, into the Missouri area. But my goodness, those two, you know, sparked the world. But Kerry Wood, as you said, was smack dab in the middle of that Scotty B, uh, punching out guys and and that one game in particular. So um, he was special and and is, I believe, from what I've been following him a little bit, Scotty B, still doing very special things. And I'll say this about, yeah, those two you're referring to, McGuire, Sosa, they could be bouncers in the lounge anytime. <laughs> Especially in their heyday yes. in 98. They could bounce for us. So let me Still go now. tell them right now to, you know, you can push many people aside, but let right. Kerry Wood in for us. We need him. Yeah, right now, yeah. Please. And then and then you have the, you know, the the red, the red carpet with, you know, I, I want the guy with, you know, holding the little red thing, letting you in and, and then telling some people, you know, that we've run across in our lives. That, oh, no, the rope. The rope. The rope. The rope. Sorry. Uh Scotty B said that you you gotta wait here. I gotta to talk to him i don't know if you're allowed <laughs> let me go tell him hey carry me go tell him. be right back yeah
We have a 1998 Rookie of the Year, two-time All-Star, through fire in a time period where upper 90s heat, I think, was pretty rare. 14 years in the bigs, mostly with the Cubs, still a co-holder of the Major League record for strikeouts in a game. It's a huge number. 20 Ks for Kerry Wood and a one-hit shutout as a rookie, fifth start ever. He's in the lounge. Kerry, great to catch up. And uh, how many times per month does that game come up in your life? Um, only at breakfast here at my house. I make my kids watch it every morning before I just send to school. <laughs> uh, no, it normally floats around. Start start of May, I'll start getting some tweets or people start sending me stuff. So uh, I usually we we all forget about it until until May first, and it starts start talking about you, it. You were so young, uh, rookie. One of the things that's outstanding about that phenomenal start was not only the twenty strikes. That, yeah, that's one. Uh, you almost threw a no hitter. And you actually almost threw a perfect game. If you think about it, because you didn't walk anybody. I can't remember if it was any errors. But the year before in Iowa, the control was an issue. And then, man, you put it all together over that winter and into the spring training. What was the big catalyst to hone in and find the plate as well as you did? Because you had nasty stuff. Yeah, you know, I think just growth, getting in front of some, some you know, pro coaches, you know, and having the first time actually having a pitching coach. Uh, once I got drafted and just kind of figuring out little tweaks and and here and there and the and the delivery of my mechanics and um you know really and I the, even the start before I got called up in Iowa my first start in, in 98 in Iowa in AAA I think I went five innings but I struck out 12 and it was kind of the same feeling I, mm-hmm. I, I that I had on that 20 strikeout game and and you know things are just clicking and and guys that have done this you know when you're in when you're in a, when you're in a groove you're not thinking about anything it's just happening right it's just going and and so it just, it kind of all came together uh, a lot sooner than I was expecting. Literally the year before I was in double A, struggling, rough start. Um, our farm director, Dave Wilder, actually came in town. This is probably my, I had four starts or four or five starts in a row. I didn't get past the third inning. Walking everybody, hitting guys, uh, giving up some big numbers. And uh, he was there to watch one of these starts. And that was the year the Cubs got off to like a, I don't know. They were horrendous in 97. And, you know, I think they were like, zero and 12 to start the season or whatever. And so there was a lot of talk about, you know, potentially guys have been pulled up from double A before. So as a young player in double A, you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm right on the doorstep here. This is, this could be a possibility. And so I was off to such a rough start and, and he came to watch one of the games and I didn't get out of the first or second inning and like for the fifth time in a row. And I went in the clubhouse and was kicking stuff and, took a shower and just started packing my bag. I was just like, I was fed up. I was done. I was embarrassed. Um, he walks in the clubhouse, like in the fourth inning and he looks at me and my locker's all cleaned out. My bag's packed. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, I'm going home. He's like, what? I was like, I'm going home, man. I I'm embarrassed. I'm tired of embarrassing myself. I didn't think I'd make it this far. I'm done. Like this is embarrassing. And so we obviously sat down and had a long talk through the rest of the game, passed the game, passed everybody leaving, stayed there and talked about it. And then, uh, you know, literally like four or five starts later, I get called at the AAA, change of scenery, uh, got with a different pitching coach that I was comfortable with. Not that I wasn't comfortable with the guy in AA because we were working super hard. It just wasn't working for me. Um, and then things started to click as I got to AAA and then finished the, finished the second half of the 97 season in Iowa and, um, and had – a lot more success and then just kind of went from there. Wow. I, I didn't realize that. that. And yeah. Hey, I mean, I was pretty young. That was actually one of my most memorable years at the time though. Your rookie year, of course, there was a lot going on in baseball, your rookie year with the yeah. teammate Sammy and, and big Mac and all that. And we'll get into that in a sec, but 
especially for a pod like this, where we're talking to players, you know, after the fact, mostly after their playing days and also talking about, you know, life after their playing days to think back to a moment there that could have completely changed your life. Like for example, Carrie, and, and this isn't just like a guy who barely made the bigs. Like, like I mentioned before, the accolades were there. So what if coach doesn't say, Hey, you're crazy. Don't, don't pack your bags. What happens? <laughs> yeah. I didn't really think that one through. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I was fresh out of high school. Like I didn't have anything to fall back on. Like this was, this was my meal ticket. So uh, yeah, that was a, that was an emotional reaction, I would say. Uh, so I'm certainly glad he talked me out of it because I didn't I didn't have so many backup plans. <laughs> it goes back to you know to growing up and and you know really feeling at that crossing moment maybe as a 12, 13 year old uh, that baseball took that level and you know everybody was noticing you carry the arm the, the size and, and you really started picking it up. Yeah, I mean, from the first time I put a glove on. I mean, I was I had a, I had, a, I had a brother that was two years older than me, uh, and back in Texas at, at that time where we were playing little league, we didn't have we didn't start with t-ball. It was kid pitch, and we didn't even have coach pitch. The kids were just going, and and you start playing, and you can start at six. Well, I was five, and I was as good or better than a lot of the six year olds and seven year olds. Um, and my dad actually was on the board of the little league, and so he's like, "Hey, my my younger son wants to play. I know he's only five, but." Can you guys take a look at him and see just they just want to make sure I wasn't going to get hurt, right? If I wasn't if I was too young to play. So I did this little mini trial for him. They're like, yeah, sure, he can play. So I got to play three years at that level. And as soon as I put my glove on and got put a uniform on and went on the field, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I loved it. I did it. I did it every minute of the day I could do it. Uh come home, get homework done, get after school, go to the field, take ground balls, go hit, go do all this stuff. And I really didn't start pitching until, you know, I was probably I mean, I pitched, but it wasn't like my primary position. I didn't really start focusing on pitching until I was probably 15, um, 16. And I really didn't – I wasn't a regular starter until my senior year in high school. When I was a sophomore, hmm. freshman, sophomore, junior, I had senior starters that were ahead of me, and so they had some seniority, and they had they were pretty good. So our high school team, like, you know, that I didn't get to pitch for the high school team. I did all of my pitching those two years in the summer league. And um, talking to my dad after this all – all the stuff happened and getting drafted and all that stuff. I was, I was 15 when the first scout saw me pitching in a summer league game. Of course, my, my dad never told me that there was a scout there watching me, which was thank God he didn't. It was great. Good. Great thinking on his part, um, on, quick on his feet, but yeah. So I got, I got seen the first time by uh, Oakland athletics scout in a summer league at 15. And then, you know, I play another high school year where I never pitch. And then we get to summer league and do that. And just, Probably 15, 16 when I started pitching in the summer and, and having success doing that and really enjoying that. I did love to hit still, but um, and I love playing shortstop. But pitching was for me right around 15, 16. And then obviously I, you know, I get to my senior year, I transfer schools and I'm the Friday night starter and the ball's jumping out of my hand. I'm throwing 92, topping out at 95 my senior year in high school. And if you're doing that at high school, you're going to you're going to have a lot of success if you can find the zone. So it was fun. There was a lot of a lot of hype around it. There were scouts at every game, cross checkers at every game. And it was just, um, you know, so I would say probably junior year summer league is when I've really thought that, hey, maybe I have a chance to to go to college and do this. Never in a million years did I think of the draft or pro ball. Yeah. And then even fast forward, actually think about it. I mean, I mentioned it before. Now you're pitching in the bigs. 
You're the rookie of the year in 1998. Your fifth start, your strikeout 20, which, by the way, I'm looking at that going, okay, 20K is like, how am I going to top that? I'm five starts into my career. And I'm also playing in one of the most memorable, most covered seasons in baseball history, playing with Sammy Sosa and, and McGuire's in the division and all that going on. Was I would say, like, was life coming at you fast? But clearly it wasn't because you were handling it on the field. Yeah, I mean, you're living a dream. It's like you, you wake up every day, you pinch yourself. I'm like, is this, am I really going to Wrigley Field to go to work again today? Is this really happening? And, you know, I, to your point, like I, my next start after I struck out 20, I struck out 13 and seven, and I was kind of pissed. I didn't have more as I'm walking off the field. I gave up a homer in the seventh <laughs> inning, a solo homer, and I was kind of mad about that. But, yeah, you, you're young enough. You're kind of you're dumb enough for sure at, at that age. You just don't know any better, you know, and it's like, oh, I, I did it once. Why can't I do it again? And so those expectations – of me just focusing on what I was doing on the mound, trying to get better than the last time out, kind of took, because I wasn't a big fan of the media. I didn't like it. It was overwhelming, especially after that fifth start. It was just like, you know, I had Jay Leno calling, Letterman calling, and I was like, whoa, what's happening here? I just want to go throw my bullpen and get ready for my next start. And, uh, you know, it, it was a little overwhelming. But to your point, like, you know, Sammy starts going off in June. He hits 20 homers in June, and then it's like, boom, spotlights on him in my opinion, where it belonged. And I was able to kind of stay calm and calm down and just go about my, my work. And I'm look, I'm still trying to fit in. I'm 20 years old in a clubhouse full of guys I watched growing up on TV. You know, I got Grace and Rick Aguilera and Kevin Tappany and, and all these guys are in there. And I'm like, I'm, I'm still trying to fit in. I'm still trying to figure out if I belong with this group at this level. Well, you sure did brother. Cause in watching you uh, come up and, and, and do what you did, but also just continue. Like you said, the numbers were outstanding. Uh, it, it was Dwight Gooden-esque. Uh, Smoltz was, you know, the type. Brett Saberham, guys that I faced, you know, earlier. That's what it reminded me. The dominance with the fastball, dramatic breaking pitch. Occasionally, you even drop a, a really great changeup, which is like, okay, really? But unfortunately, those other guys that I met, Pedro comes to mind. Yeah. They did not suffer the Tommy John injury you did the very next year. Because if it wasn't for the injuries in that, my goodness, uh, your numbers would be skyrocketing. And they were darn good. Yeah. And, you know, that was the starter, right? Like, so the elbow happened. I actually missed the the last four weeks of that 98 season. And then we ended up making the playoffs. So I ended up pitching in a playoff game. I hadn't thrown in over, a, you know, probably over a month, mm. right around a month in a game. And I get, I was in Arizona just rehabbing this elbow inflammation or strain or whatever they, you know, ultimately it was Tommy John was getting ready to happen. We were just, we were just trying to get ready for the postseason. I rehabbed well enough, came back, made a, made a start in the playoffs. I knew then I couldn't throw, I was fastball changeup in a playoff game against the Braves. And it was like, you know, I can only go so far with that. I knew I couldn't, I couldn't spin the breaking ball the way I, I had been all kinds of treatment on the elbow, on the, on the elbow the whole time. And then literally like first out in the spring training, it, it goes. Wow. Um, but I, I will say from the first, like after at that time, the protocol was four months. You can start playing catch afterwards. You've done all the stuff. The first time I played catch, I'm like, all right, I'm going to come back from this. This is going to be no problem. And so, I mean, listen, I, I dealt with shoulder stuff later in the career, too. And I would do 10 Tommy John surgeries before right. you, know, you got to do, do a shoulder. So, yeah, the shoulder was the one that really made things difficult and had to change the way I threw. The Tommy John was just, if you're missing a full season, then you got to find a release point the following season and come back. And, you know, I had three pretty good years after that in a row before the shoulder went. Sure did. Do you wish there was anything that you had information wise or arm preservation wise back when you were pitching. I, I called you also just a modern pitcher. I mean, ahead of your time in turn, like I feel like we see 
Kerry Wood style pitching a lot more now. And obviously some of that has to do with just pitching with, you know, ridiculous speed that is more common in the game. I actually ask this sometimes to like the hundred mile an hour throwers these days. I'm like, Hey, super simple question that the kids probably want to know. How do you throw that hard? So just wondering like how that whole process went for you. Was, was it natural? Sometimes I get a guy that says, Hey, I, the key, you know, drill or the key moment for me where it suddenly jumped up was a growth spurt or this pitching coach, whatever it was. So I don't know what was life like for you growing as a pitcher back then when there wasn't as much data and just coaching and availability of info, even on how to preserve your arm like there is now. Yeah. You know, I think, like I said, I topped out at 95 in high school a few times. So that was, I mean, that's just natural. I didn't do anything. I was just a kid. I played all, I played other sports and I just so happened I was gifted with the ability to throw the ball and and throw it hard. I think the jump from pro ball, when I got in there, the tweaks that I talked about and some of the mechanics and the delivery and getting with these coaches, I think that was what got me the extra five, six miles an hour. When, when you're talking about hitting a hundred, like there wasn't much I changed other than developing a, a steady shoulder routine and preservation. Like you said, when you're done throwing, you do a certain amount of work when, you know, you, you maintenance. Right. And so I think that's the, there, there wasn't any drill I did that made me throw hard. I mean, I was, I was given a guy, it was God given gift. There's no question. And, um, you know, when that happens, you just like, you kind of take, take I, at some points or especially early in the career, you take, take it for granted because you've always been able to just wake up, get out of bed and go throw a ball 97, 98 miles an hour without really thinking about it. Um, and you think that's just the way it's going to be. And, you know, I think you really, as an athlete, I think you don't really learn your body and, and how it all works until you've gone through an injury, you know, and that for me anyways, when I went through the injuries is when I really started to learn what I needed to do to, to stay healthy. Okay. Big urban Texan, uh, KW, I'm going to put you slightly on the spot to settle a bit of a, argument, but disagreement between my extremely talented young um, driver of this baseball legends lounge. Okay. So here it is. Right. I'm going to give you a scenario. Okay. Cause he was, ver- I really glad he said that because you do are, you're reminiscent of what's today guys throwing 97, a hundred dramatic breaking pitch, but you still were, you know, in that nineties and, and, and probably had a different men- mentality it's definitely staying in games. So here's my question. Who wins the Cy Young guy that uh, leads the league and wins you, let's say uh, play- player a wins, 20 games, loses nine, 2.35 ERA, 225 innings, leads the league in quality starts, wins, Ks, and has only six no decisions. In fact, his nickname is Mr. Bully Buddy, okay? (laughs) Pitcher B went 13-4 and with a league-leading 1.85 ERA and a league leader in fewest hits, runs allowed, only 173 innings, 15 no decisions. Okay, also led the league in FI and FIP, also led the league in Sierra, also led the league in RA9 and in WHIP. Am I helping you out here in all this? Am I getting fancy there, uh, Scotty B? Who wins the – well, by the way, his nickname for me is uh, uh, Senor Five and Fly. Uh, Now, uh, who wins the Cy Young? So, for me, it's right. Number one, I think it's – I, I take wins out of it because there's too many variables for a, for a guy like, right. You like, you can, you can go eight innings every time your bullpen gives it up. You get a no decision. Those things happen. You go five innings. Do I think you deserve the win? Probably not. I don't think, I mean, I think that's a coin toss, right? Like if you it's come a out of a game and it's a sport too, right, Carrie? Yeah, it's a team sport. Very and so the win loss is kind of a team number. It's kind of a team category in my opinion, mm-hmm. right? There's certainly a pitcher can go out and give up seven in the first, 
that's not a team loss. That's that's a loss that belongs <laughs> tag to him. But so I look at innings. I look at batting average against. I look at um, walks versus strikeouts and innings pitched. Right. I mean, those are the ones for me that show you that you're you're dominating what you do when you're out there. You're dominating that you're dominating the hitters. You're batting average against your ERA. Those are you own those. Those are your, those are your stats. Um, Twenty wins would be great, right? But I'll take a guy with a with a one four one five ERA that only ended right. up thirteen or fourteen wins, but maybe he pitched he he, he hitters hit you know one seventy five off of him. You know, it gives your team a chance to win every time he steps on the mound. So I for oh. me it's not. For it's me, it's not, the, it's not prevention. The, analytical is what I call him. That's got. It's not analytical though. Like it's no, just run prevention. That's what we're you, talking about. And I'm about. glad that he was the perfect guy to ask this question because he kind of pitches like today's pitcher, but understands the other side. And again, the one thing that does variable that he mentioned was the innings pitch because I believe in yeah. the workhorse I and agree. the bull, bullpen saver, even yeah. if he doesn't get the win. But the guy goes out there and pitches seven innings almost every time. In fact, DeGrom is a great example. He won the, the, the Cy Young recently with, what, 13 wins, 14 wins? But he, he never came out. He wasn't 5-5. Five five. That's not going to just wasn't getting any run support. Uh, it, was a, it was a weak-hitting Mets team that year, and he'd sometimes lose 2-1. to one. Yeah. Yeah, but you can make the case also, Carrie. I mean, when you pitched at a time period, right, with with you and, and Mark Pryor sometimes, like even back then, I remember being like, whoa, like, I mean, you had some high pitch count totals and, yeah. you know, maybe that wasn't the right move mm. that's been discussed and that's that's fair. And that's why yeah. modern pitching, we say, all right, you know, like maybe a hundred's a good cap and we've got other guys. Like, yeah, I think there's a balance there. No, I do. I agree. I think that's fair. There's, I mean, I threw 140 pitches, 142, 141. Like I've, I've, I've done that, uh, you know, but we built we felt like we were built. And first of all, Pryor's injury came on a base running thing, right? Like he was as solid mechanically and workhorse and his work ethic was, he was unbelievable. Like he made me better just by what he did off the field and getting ready for his starts. Right. So we, we were, we were trained. We were ready. We didn't, we would, did not expect to come out of a game until we got around 118, 120, somewhere in that, that we thought that was our, that was our pitch limit, right? Like we, if we're cruising, then we go. We can go one more, one more hitter or one more inning. But it all depends on how you get there, too. Like Kershaw, the, Kershaw just threw a game recently where he had, you know, he's seven innings. He's he's perfect. He threw eighty pitches. Are another twenty pitches really going to hurt him? You know what I mean? Do, do we? I get it. It's early. He had some. He had some inflammation in the forearm and all that stuff. I get it. Back. I understand it. You know yeah, I mean? and also, and I mean, that's partially on him, right? And like he he's had injuries and he wasn't built yeah. up, and yeah. I think and it, he it was partially right to his decision too, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then you had the kid from Miami that struck out twelve and in five innings the other night and got pulled yep. with seventy five pitches, and it's like mm, might want to see him go a little deeper. See what he can do. I, I've got more pressing issues from Carrie's playing days. Oh, like what was it like <laughs> to be a pitcher in the? late 90s early 2000s when let's be real I mean it's not a secret there was steroids in the game were crazy and you were pitching against guys in my mind that had an unfair advantage at not this Cuban that's just the facts not the Cuban I was good not not this guy not this guy that's on with us and hey Seikos with the Palmeros with a lot of guys in Miami and I was tempted but I actually was scared. I didn't. I didn't know it. I didn't understand it. But yeah, so many that you had to face, Kerry. What What was your thought pattern? What was the deal? Did you know, like, oh crap, this guy's got an unfair <laughs> advantage. Like he's, you know, juicing out of. It's like you knew yeah, every I player's mean, situation, you, but you knew what was going on in the league to an extent. 
you you assume right like you, it was never talked about it was never ever even openly there was never Good an point. open conversation about it anywhere any time it was just like this dude was throwing this dude or this dude hit seven homers last year now he's now he's gonna hit 50 you know it's like <laughs> ah. he went yeah. his last three years he went 12 11 10 homers and now he's sitting on 47 and it's in august we're still in august and it's like ah okay maybe mm. uh you know but the it yeah, looking back on it now, I feel like everybody that had to pitch through that era should be should get a half point taken off their career already. <laughs> <laughs> wow! The, I mean, the, the fear, the fear right really, the fear was really when the big when like the big guys got up there. It's like, all right, well, I'm throwing this kid. I'm throwing him everything inside. That way, he can't square one up and hit it back at me. Because like by the time I let go of the ball with my stride and my release, like I'm starting at 60 feet, but I'm at like 50, 49, 50 feet away from a dude with a wiffle ball bat in his hand hitting, you know, 120 mile an hour rockets. Like it'll kill me. I have no I have no chance to catch it or get out of the way. So really, when the big dudes came up and the guys that just smashed the ball, it was like, all right, don't throw them anything away where they can actually drop the head on it and get it out in front and hit it back at me. It's like if I hit them, I hit them. If I walk them, I walk them. But at least I live to play another day. Yeah, sir. <laughs> I give it, I give him a ton of credit. And I, and, and that does want, you know, that does lead me to back to the, the 20K game, just because I do want to make sure we get some Kerry Wood uh, after his playing days in there. So, you know, what is 100%. life like after playing days? We've had some really interesting conversations, Kerry, about, you know, players, especially like that, that first month when you hang up the uniform and what life is like. And, and I do definitely want to tie that into your foundation. So let's actually start there. What's the latest? Cause I know, I mean, this, it's been over a decade that you formed the, the Wood family foundation yep. and uh, you're just kicking off 20 days to 20 K campaign, which is Friday, this Friday, May the 6th. So give us the lowdown and how that all came about and, and what's been the next chapter of your life. Yeah. So we, you know, I had the foundation started before when I came back from New York and playing in New York and in Cleveland, I came back and finished with Chicago and obviously knew I was going to finish my career here. So it's like, we did some charity stuff around town over the years and different things and kind of dabbled in, in the, in the nonprofit stuff. And then we decided that when I came back that it was time to actually, you know, set, set roots here um, start a foundation and, and try to make an impact. And it, and it really just started by like living in Chicago, you watch the news, you hear all the bad stuff all the time, nightly. And uh, I found myself one night, we were sitting there watching, I couldn't believe what was going on in some of these neighborhoods. And you just, you know, I said to the wife, I'm like, somebody should really like, God, we got to fix this, man. Somebody's got to do something about this. And after saying that enough times, I was like, and then still seeing it nightly, I was like, well, maybe, maybe we should do, maybe we should try to do something about this. And uh, and so we just kind of worked our way in and and and, uh, and decided that mentoring these young kids is going to be kind of what we wanted to where we wanted to approach it and how we wanted to go about it. So we, you know, we did our due diligence. We go into these neighborhoods, go into the schools, meet the principals, um, local churches and kind of see what their need is and just really went in with open ears and, and, and hearts and just listen to what they what what they need, what they we didn't try to come in with the answers. Hey, this is how you have to do it. We went in and listened to their town hall meetings, listened to what their problems were, what their issues are, what they needed help with. And so we just kind of looked and saw that there was some early life stuff. There was, there were some foundations doing some early, early childhood development stuff and the high schools had some stuff. And so we're like, Hey, well, there's a gap here in middle school, you know, fourth through eighth grade. didn't seem like there was a ton going on for these kids, which we thought was pretty pivotal time in these kids' lives. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of times this, the, the neighborhoods that these kids are in, they, they, by the time they get to fifth or sixth grade, some of the neighborhood stuff has already kind of sucked them in. And, and so we really wanted to try to get, get into their lives before that happened. So 
at this point, we're in four schools. We've got about 250 students and families and kids that we mentor uh, daily uh, after wow. school programs. And obviously, we keep them in the summer. We try to keep them active in the summer. So we stay with them and we have mentors attached to these kids and and site leaders at each place and, and um, you know, growing into another neighborhood here in a few months. Uh, so next year, we'll have our fifth school, maybe fifth and sixth school. Um so yeah, we're just we're trying to get it at an early early stage and and give back, man. The city was so good to me and my family for so long, and um, we love Chicago and 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 we hate seeing what's what's going on in, in some of these neighborhoods, and and so we're just we're trying to get to this youth this youth group and and uh, and be an imp- impact in these kids' lives. Well, that's exactly where I wanted to go because I tell you, I, I love Chicago uh, as a player and coming through with the Marlins and, and the Pirates and and, and the in the National League, and, and and briefly, you know, with the Yankees in my short stay there, um, but spent a good time. And then afterwards, would visit it. My son and his wife now just moved to, to the North Side of Chicago, close to Wrigley. Loved the town, just loved visiting it for a weekend. But the reality is, there's some major issues going on. But also, the fandom is so intense, folks. You know, of course, you know, I've gotten in a cab where the guy, yeah, you like the, the White Sox or the Cubs? And I go, oh, I like the Cubs. Get out of my cab. But the people are passionate about their baseball and their sports. How did they welcome you with this project? And, and with overall, you know, your love of the fans and the fans loving for Kerry Wood. Man, I got I got to tell you, it's like nowadays it's 50-50. People remember me for for being a baseball player and, and doing what I did in Chicago for, for so long. And now – it's the other half is, Hey, we love what you're doing in the communities. We love what you're doing for the city. So like it really, my kids here, they hear both of it. Like my own personal kids were at, Hey, I love what the foundation's doing. We, we follow you guys. We're, we're involved. And we, we're, we've been in this event. We've been to that event. So it's like, it's, uh, it's really cool to have, you know, to be known for something more than just going out and playing a sport. Right. Which is cool and fun, but like, you know, I felt like we have an opportunity and we're given a platform as celebrities or so-called celebrities, but as athletes, especially in Chicago, you're given this platform. Um, you know, why not, why not do something impactful with it? And so I, I really feel like that's what we, we, we wanted to do. And, and, uh, you know, now our first group of fourth graders that we picked are now graduating high school this year. So like we've got kids going off to college, they're getting into great high schools and, and really hopefully it, it, making a difference in these kids' lives and the trajectory of, of where they're going. That's amazing. And anything specifically to know about the 20 days to 20 K campaign? I mean, pretty, at least the title is pretty self-explanatory. Like we're yeah. leading up to uh, the big anniversary. Yeah. It's a, it's just one of our, it's one of our fundraisers leading up to the anniversary. So it's just to, again, keep, keep it out there and keep it in people's minds of this is still going on. We're doing this. And uh, there's always a lot of hype on, you know, or like I said, around May 1st through May 6th about, about the game and they'll show it on marquee network again, a few times. And, and uh, people get sick of watching it. And then, uh, yeah, so it's just kind of a, one of our little fundraisers that we're doing uh, throughout the year. The Chicago community is amazing. It is, isn't it? Give, give us the, web, the website again for it. So it's WFFPitchIn.org. WFFPitchIn.org. Everybody, check it out. And if you can donate. Sticking out in Chicago just for one other second, because you were able to play in New York, you were able to play in Chicago, Cleveland. You know, and you saw a different city in different bases. You're from Texas. Again, a, a whole different yep. modality over there in all four of those different cities. Um, what struck you? And and what I love about the, the Chicago city and the, and the diehard fans of all their sports is that they're very knowledgeable, but they're still Midwest. Yep. So you, you get that dichotomy. I'm assuming you enjoyed that. Yeah. And, you know, it was great. Listen, it, 
and I got to see the I got to see the expectations from a fan base change, right? Like I I, get, I come up in '98. The Cubs haven't been to the haven't been to a hadn't won a World Series since 1908. Haven't been to the playoffs since '89. Hadn't won a playoff series since 1945. Right. So I'm, I come up in Chicago and it's like, the fans love you. Right. Everybody loves you. And it's like, oh, this is easy to play here. You don't even have to win. And they love you. What a great place to play. And then we win the wild card game in 98 and get into the playoffs. Right. And it's like pandemonium. It's like, holy cow, we haven't been in the playoffs since, you know, however many years since 1980, 89. And, um, and then we obviously we, we get knocked out in the first round, but it was great. Like that held them off for another couple of years. And then I think in 0203, when we went deep, we got into the NLCS. We got to the game seven with the Marlins. We don't really need to talk about that, but no. we uh, we got there. And I think we got to see the fan base change. The expectations of the Chicago Cubs fans changed because of that group of guys and because of that season. And it was like, hey. Now we kind of expect we want we like this feeling of being in the postseason and going with a chance to win a World Series and get there again. This is this is what this fan base wants. No longer are they satisfied with losing 90, 95 games and just coming out to Wrigley to have some beers and hang out. Right. Like they still do that, which is great. But they they had expectations now. So I I got to see that change and and be a part of that. And that was really cool. And then. Obviously, I retire and, and got a chance to to see him actually get it done in 2016 from a fan's point of view, and it was uh, it was awesome to be a part of. Yeah, now it's all once you get that that title too. Now it really changes. Hey, yeah. we should be good every year, right? Yeah. I now, mean, you I, hear, now you hear booze at Wrigley Field for the first time. <laughs> wow, that's wild. Yeah. So before O drops his you know big hammer question at the end, I just wanted to sneak in one more about. The fanfare, too, because this this whole Chicago talk gets me thinking, and I've spent a lot of time in Chicago, and my sister went to Northwestern, and I grew up in the New York City area in New Jersey, and it's a very different fan base in the New York City area, especially for Yankee fans and, and the expectations, but also being in New York and celebrities walking around, like, you can be a New York player, and definitely you feel it from the media all the time, but then you can also, unless you're like Aaron Judge or something, and you're sticking out, like, Francisco Lindor of the Mets can probably walk. I, I've talked to him actually about this. He can walk down the street and, you know, kind of not be noticed or it's just like a friendly, like, Oh, well I passed, you know, this celebrity and that celebrity. And now yeah. here's, here's Francisco Lindor. I imagine that, especially when you came up, but really that whole time period. And even now, like Chicago f- fans, Chicago community, like they know their teams, they know their players. Mm-hmm. So when you're walking around, you're not sneaking by too many people in Chicago, are you? No. And you're not, I mean, it's, it's, you're not the, you're, there's no other celebrities in Chicago. There's no actors. There's no, I mean, it's like you and the newscasters of people. Well, that's who they recognize. Right. And so it's like, <laughs> yeah, you're not, you're not going anywhere. It was, it was crazy coming, especially after the 20 strikeout game immediately after that for the next several years, it was uh, even the 25th dude on the roster is, doesn't buy a drink, doesn't buy a dinner, like can't walk down the street. It's crazy. And, and then I look back and, and think about like what Sammy was doing and, and how he was just, even for the rest of the guys in the clubhouse that were kind of still living, they got a taste of all that themselves, like going out in public and, and being in Chicago. But then you see the level that Sammy was and it's like, holy, this dude's like Michael Jackson. You know, it, it's crazy. And uh, yeah, but Chicago, man, it, it's, there's no better place to play. And everyone says that when they're, you know, about their team and their city and their, but list what, and I got a chance to play in New York. We were pretty good. We had a, we had a run for the playoffs. I played in Cleveland. We were really bad and we didn't have a chance, but being in Chicago and 
on a winning team doing well is I can't imagine there's a better place to play. Oh, late nineties. I mean, basically you just replaced Jordan. They, they completely forgot about him and they just <laughs> thought about, okay, maybe they, not. They um, never about Jordan. <laughs> him and Ditko will never be forgotten. That's right. Um, brother. I'll tell you why. What, what, what a beautiful, you know, story as far as from the beginning through it and now the wonderful work you're doing and back in this great town that's been so good to you. I, I commend you and your wife. But now, no way, Jose, KW. Give Here me a story. Go. You know, you can leave names out or in. Uh, just tell me the back number and I'll probably guess it. But no, just kidding. <laughs> uh, that, you know, that you found, like you couldn't believe it, on, off the field. Somewhere somebody did something, or you did. Yeah. So, man, I was saying that there, there's when you think back about the stories you actually remember are you know there's 95 percent of them can't be told to anyone ever. <laughs> you gotta kind of keep them to yourself, or you'll kill um, you. And so then you got to think of the five percent you can actually tell, and can you remember them right? And but I did listen to you. I listened to Chipper on your show. I listened to Chipper Jones, and he told him Maddox. He told him Maddox uh, gotcha thing. And uh, by the way, you could have a whole section on Maddox and those. We are we are coming to find that out very. Quickly. I mean, what, just to follow up what Chipper was talking about, getting peed on in the shower. So Maddox comes over to to Wrigley the first. He's first spring training. We're playing together. First or second day of spring training, we I get in, I get in the shower. He's in there and we're, he's next to me. And I never heard the story before, so I'm washing my hair and I just turn to him like, "Hey, just a heads up out here. You like to pee on guys, just." It, if you want to see two, if you pee on me, there's going to be two naked dudes fighting in the shower. Just, just a heads up. He's like, Oh no, no, I'd never pee on you. Probably peeing on me while he said that. But uh, just so just to follow up on Chipper. Yes. That that's a true story that happens. And there's a whole segment you got, you guys could do a two hour show on Maddox stuff. We're going to bring him on at some point. We have to. Oh. Well, we're, we're going to bring him on KW and then just play all the Maddox stories that we're getting. And it's not just peeing him. It's other zany and kind of, Dirty stuff. The dude, he's, the dude he's was gr- you know what? filthy I, I, on I, I, and I, off the mound. I'll stick with the theme. I had I had uh I had an Eddie Vedder karaoke night. I had a dude delivering cookies in a bar naked. So I'll I'll go I'll I'll go to the Maddox one just because we're gonna follow suit here, just so we can get this ball rolling. So Maddox was always first one at the yard. Like he he'd beat some of the coaches there. He's in there watching film, he's drinking his coffee, he's got a dip in, he's got his feet up, he's just watching video, watching stuff that the rest of us would never pay attention to. That's why he was able to do what he could do with 85 miles an hour. He just paid attention to the details of hitter. He just constantly was in the film room. So he was there super early. He'd get his running in, do his stuff. And we had, we had a basket in the middle of the clubhouse on the, one of the tables full of those little sanitary socks, the white socks that guys wear, right? And you just come in when you're getting dressed, you grab two, you get, you get dressed, you put them on. So he would get there. He would get done after he'd go run on the treadmill or whatever and be sweaty and nasty. And he'd, pull his drawers off, go to the white sock thing and just, you know, full on wipe, wipe his butt with these socks. Then he'd throw them back in the basket. Then he had sat in his locker with his crossword and watched to see who took the sock with his stuff on it. And then he'd watch him put it on. And then he'd watch it and he'd come up, like he came over one day in BP batting practice for the outfield. He's like, Hey, Woody, check out so-and-so he's wearing my shit on his leg. <laughs> So just to, keep, cruel. just to keep the Maddox <laughs> ball rolling, on and off the field. he's dirty. He's dirty, but funny. <laughs> dirty. Not just like a, I guess he's a hall of famer prankster and pitcher, man. I, 
he is he's top of the list, man. In both of those categories, top of the list. Who does who would even think of that? That's not the way he you know manipulated two games quickly, and he would cut you because that's the guy I did pay. And and then he manipulates to his teammates too. And, yeah, and it's things um, like you I mean, would never think. Obviously, stuff that goes to his he's full grown fourteen year old. <laughs> like that's just that's just where he was. But so yeah, his stuff is his next level for sure. And I'm sure you're going to get many many more. I hope we I hope we get. Uh, Get him on and get the match. There's going to be like a subdivision of this podcast called Greg Maddox is a Savage. And it just goes through all of the stories that we've heard from a variety of players that he's been around. And it seems to pop up quite frequently with our conversations. And the only thing at this point that I'm thinking is, and I'm with you, Carrie, like if I had heard the reputation, I'm the kind of guy too that would have gone up to him and been like, dude, I know you're the man, super high respect for you, the whole deal. If you mess with me like that, I'm going to kick your ass. Yeah. I mean, that is, literally that was brown. our first conversation. <laughs> Dude, that, I, that is fantastic. Scotty B, we're going to have to change this. No way Maddox. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I told you, he's no got his own, way. he's got his own subdivision on this. So yeah, you I, got many more Maddox, many, many more Maddox. We're going to have you back on. You have to, you know, yeah. pry open the, 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 the woodsy ch- chest there and, and, and get some more. Like I know where you got all those, you already said that you got the, the all the 20 memorabilia. It's not behind you. Where's no, it's, it's I got one of the flags. The flags over there. Ooh, that's nice. Yeah, it's like Fort Knox. We're coming over soon, buddy. Bring it. My son's Hello. in Chicago, so I'm gonna visit. We'll shoot the Maddox show here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Oh, we love looking at what life is like after a playing career for a variety of players. I think many would want to know, and we'll do it in a sec. Where are they now? Where is Kerry Wood now? Well, he is hustling in the charitable space, in the community space. Well, the best way, you know, to tie it in a bow for that beautiful interview was a great 20, 20 strikeout performance and how he came in hard, but he hasn't left you know, the city of Chicago, he's still entrenched in there and he's still striking out, if you will, you know, uh, analogy wise and doing uh, a lot of great things. So uh, still an all-star in, in, uh, in the Chicago Cubs fans minds. And he's going to lead off this week in baseball history. It is Carrie Wood week. So I've got two for you. Let's yeah. cover more of this epic 98 start May the 6th. Fifth career start, casually matching Roger Clemens' single game record for strikeouts in a nine-inning affair. Fan 20 Astros batters. Casually, (laughs) no big deal. Oh, start number five, I'm going to strike out 20 Astros at Wrigley. One of the most dominant pitching performances, too. I wanted to mention that in league history because it was close to perfection. No walks, just one hit allowed, only two balls left the infield. It was one of the just all-around most dominant performances we've ever seen. So, you know, we, we pumped it up pretty good during the interview, but there's just a little more context for you on how absurdly special that start was it was one of the best ever it was and 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 again you know in chicago uh right away he just won the hearts of those rabid fans because i love the chicago cubs fans we talked about it in the interview rightfully so because that that mid not only the midwest mentality of of just being good wholesome people but they get baseball so they knew what they were seeing in in that history making night 
And then I have one more this week in baseball history. And this story is so cool. So on May 2nd, 1954, Stan the Man Mutual had himself a day in a doubleheader against the New York Giants at Bush Oof. Stadium. So he went six for eight, five homers, nine RBIs, two walks. No big deal. That that's that's huge, right? But that's not the story, okay? Right. And he hit five homers at the time, the only batter to ever go deep five times in a doubleheader, which is that's sick. Of- home run hitting but this is where it gets wild ready there was an eight-year-old named nate colbert i'm I'm assuming it's colbert um because i I mean i'm thinking stephen colbert but in attendance that day at bush he was checking out his hometown team his faves the cardinals nate was a three-time all-star later on 18 years later though he joins stan mutual on the same page of the record books he had five homers in a double header day as a member of the Padres sweeping the Atlanta Braves. And to this day, it's Mutual and Colbert, the only two players to hit five homers in one day in a double header day like that. And uh, he was at stands and then did it himself. Like he was in attendance at eight That's years sick. old. That's sick. I, you know, I, I have not met Mr. Nate Colbert. I remember that day and what he did, but I did get a chance to meet the, the late but great stand the man Mutual. And what always struck me, he was like so happy, always had a harmonica in his pocket and he would play the harmonica for you. Uh, What a man, what a swing, what a day. And now... Where are they now? And I wanted to look back at a former big leaguer doing a job that's relatable for many thousands in this country. So we're going to go back to school with Logan Easley, part to two seasons pitching for the Pirates late 80s and picked up a couple wins, a couple saves, 27 appearances in the bigs, played with some pretty famous players, Barry Bonds, Bobby Bonilla, Andy Van Slyke, Doug Drabeck. Did he play with O? Uh, he did play with the famous O, and not, I'm not talking about big O Oscar Robertson. I'm, I'm, I'm meaning me, sir. Me. Yeah, uh, listen, he was something else, and I'm going to tell you why, and I still love this man because of the fact that uh, he was one of those guys that grinded it out. So he had a, he, he wasn't just straight up to the big leagues. Uh, that righty with a really nasty curveball had to you know, travail through A ball, double A, several years in triple A, finally got up, stuck for a while, very proud of Logan and proud that he's a teacher, Scotty B, because you know how I feel about teachers. My mom was one for 50 years. So uh, way to go, Logan. It's special. Yeah. Minor league journeyman makes it up to the show, went on to work in education, elementary school age children, spent a little time uh, teaching at his alma mater to College of Southern Idaho. So props to him, props to Kerry Wood. This was a fun one. You're picking up your groove, I think now too, you know, getting in a rhythm with No Way Jose. It's starting to become a thing. Brother. I'm it, because the baseball legends lounge, I'm in the lounge. It just feels around me. The aura. Come on in. Catch us next week again. Yes. The lounge is officially closed. We will see you next week. We love having you. And of course, hit us up on social. If you have any guest requests. Okay. The Rolodex is long for us with the players alumni association we can get to anyone so hook us up with who you want to hear from otherwise we'll just keep rolling out studs in the meantime see you soon the legends lounge podcast is brought to you by major league alumni marketing 
Hit us with questions or comments at legendslounge at mlbpaa.com. Check out our memorabilia at mlamauthentics.com. Later, legends. Legends.